Welcome to the 38th episode of the ClassCast podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Tibbins. Today, we'll be speaking with Janela Soul, the author of Adventure by Chicken Bus, an unschooling odyssey through Central America. Janet and I have been in touch uh, for a few weeks, emailing back and forth, trying to find a good time to talk about something that she is very passionate about and that I am very curious about, and that is the concept of world schooling, which is not necessarily the traditional homeschooling or unschooling, but it also obviously would not be the traditional public school model. And so the goal today is to discuss some of the ideas of world schooling and her own experience, both as a classroom teacher and working with her own children through travels and through some of the experiences that uh, the broader global community can provide. Janet, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Brian, for having me. So before we get into any details of your schooling or your experiences with world schooling in general or specifically with your own children, perhaps you can tell us a little more clearly what do we mean by world schooling and, and how does that work? Because until recently, this is a term that I was unfamiliar with, and I'm going to assume that most of the listeners don't know exactly what we're talking about either. So that, so that we have a common vocabulary, what is world schooling and why do you feel strongly about it? I tried to look up the history of the term world schooling and who coined it, but I, I couldn't find a clear answer. But world schooling generally means travel for educational purposes. So families are typically... Um, exiting the rat race, quite frankly. They've either been frustrated by the grind, the rat race grind. They often expressed to me when I was speaking with them on Facebook the other day in preparation for this interview that they didn't spend enough time with their kids and there was a whole world out there and they just decided to take drastic steps, quite frankly, sell their houses, sell their possessions raise some funds and take their kids around the world. It's not a vacation. Um, a vacation is wonderful. One or two week um, timeouts from the day-to-day grind is, is great. This is something that's usually very long-term. Um, in some cases, it's months or years. And people take their, their kids to expose them to other languages and cultures around the world. It's, um, you know, travel and tourism is a juggernaut industry. And world schoolers are a large part of that. It's more and more common for people to be taking their children on these uh, round-the-world trips, showing them other parts of the world. So that's, that's what world schooling is. That's great. So, you know, in a way, it has some things in common with homeschooling, which sort of has more of a structure, a more traditional approach to subject areas and content. Unschooling is sort of the free range. We're just going to learn by doing and, and live life. And so it's got a little bit of both of those, but with very much a different format. And, and before maybe we do the details of that, I want to point this out both for listeners and because I think this is very important. I have this conversation with students a lot. I have the good fortune, or perhaps maybe more accurately, my students have the good fortune of on average being fairly wealthy. Like where I live is very middle class, but the county that I teach in is, is very upper class. And uh, some of the students talk a lot about travel. And I continually make the distinction that you're really on vacation. That, you know, if you go somewhere for a week and you never really leave the resort, (laughs) that's not really travel because you have not been, you have not been surrounded by that culture. You know, resort culture is sort of the same wherever you go. They play different music, but everything else is the same. Whereas travel is really about experiencing the lives of, of the people in the place where you're going. And I think that that, on average, is far more educational than maybe a nice vacation. Not Again, not that anything's wrong with the vacation itself, but with the idea of traveling to learn, to, to sort of break out of some of the things that maybe bog us down a little bit or, or distract us from maybe the more enriching or interesting parts of life, at what point for you 
did this come onto your radar? At what point did travel with children become something that you were actively interested in as opposed to say just taking the normal summer trip to the beach or something like that? How did this begin for you? Actually, I've been backpacking since I was 17. So my kids came by it naturally. All Canadian school children are required to learn French. We're a bilingual nation. The children in the Francophone regions of Canada are required to learn English. So from as when I was four years old, I started learning French, but I was extremely talented at it. And all through school, I, you know, those were my highest marks. And once I got into high school, my dad actually brokered a deal with his boss to take me to France with them for the summer to babysit their kids. And that was, I was 17. And so that was my first experience with travel. And I met a friend there. Um, we've, we've actually been friends ever since. And I'm, I'm a lot older than 17 now. Um, <laughs> so the experience of traveling when I was 17, and I'm sure you've talked to many people who have traveled. And the very first time they travel, they say to themselves, they never stop after that. It's just something that happens to people. It's just so extremely interesting. So as I said, I started off at 17 and I never really stopped. I went off to university and I was studying languages at university actually. And, you know, one day I got a part-time job sitting in a parking booth at the university. So I would do my homework at the parking booth and the parking booth faced the flight path of all the flights going into Toronto International Airport. And it was like British Airways and KLM. And here I was studying Spanish and Italian and French out of a textbook. And I was watching all these planes. And I remembered my experience in France. And whereas I was advanced in French going to France, you can imagine how much more advanced I was after I had spent the summer in France. So I thought to myself, why am I learning languages out of a textbook when I could get on those airplanes and go to the places where people speak the languages and have this immersion experience. So I back I go, I go backpacking all over Europe and Northern Africa, and I did all this wacky traveling. So when I came home and enrolled in teacher's college, it's where I met my husband. We said to each other, we're going to travel right away. As soon as we get, as soon as we graduate, we're, we're traveling to teach ESL. So it was just like a continuous thing for me and my husband. We were travelers from the time we were young. So when the kids came along, we did those sort of weekend excursions that everybody does. You would go camping and we went to the eastern part of Canada where there's great opportunities for whale watching. We took them to Quebec because we wanted them to learn French. And like at one point, we were just got so bogged down with the finances. We, we actually hit rock bottom financially. We were just a typical family, typical middle class family. I decided I wanted to homeschool the girls. So that meant that we were only surviving on one salary and we couldn't do it. We just could not make, we couldn't meet our expenses and... It, it got very stressful. So my husband's a teacher as well. So he decided to get night school contracts. And then he said to me, there's, a, there's an opening for another night school teacher. So he's teaching day school and night school. And I was teaching night school. We're homeschooling the kids. We're not putting them to bed at night. We're hiring a babysitter. All of this rat race grind was happening. And we said to each other, this isn't how we want to live. Like we're not spending any time with the girls. We're not spending any time with each other. It was very stressful. And to top it all off, we couldn't even get out of debt, no matter how hard we worked. So we could sort of like we had this sort of Salvation Army decor going on with the secondhand furniture, which was fine. We didn't mind that. But then as soon as the car breaks down, you got to take out the credit card. As soon as the furnace breaks, you got it. So we were always seemed to be in a hole. So by this point, 
we had been married for several years and we sort of had a practice as a couple that we would write down each write down our goals and then we would give that to the other person so then that person was aware and then they could encourage the other person say okay what about number four like how are you coming along with the list so when we were at rock bottom financially we we sat down and we said we need to go to this list again because this is not working so we wrote down a list of the things that we wanted to do with our lives and we swapped the list and we were shocked that on each list there was one word at the top that was identical to both lists and that was travel so we said to each other well we can just do something really drastic like yes we had traveled around a little bit in canada we had never taken the girls anywhere outside of our own country i think we went down to the states we have relatives in new york that's about it and so we thought to ourselves like can we do this can we take them on a on a like one of those backpacking excursions that we did when we were younger um and we said well we need to make a drastic change so that's what we did and that was the the youngest at the time was five and the oldest was eight when we decided to do this and that was our first real world schooling experience and we we basically sold everything that we owned our cars, every fork, the spices in the cupboard. The only thing we didn't sell was the house <laughs> um, because we rented it out to, to a family. And then we basically bundled up our backpacks and struck out for Central America. That was basically the history behind the, the that's usually what happens with most world schooling families. They just get to a point where they're fed up and they decide, you know, what is it that's, that's going to sort of jolt us out of our existence here? How can we do a reset? And that, that's what it was for us anyway. That's really interesting, you know, and I have, um, well, I guess it's, it's uh, my wife's friend who is someone who has listened to the podcast a decent amount, and I, I won't name her by name, but that is more or less, but they're sort of on that path where it's young, young children, she's doing some homeschooling, and my wife actually helped them just on like Facebook Marketplace or something, find an old school bus, and they're revamping the school bus to create, to sort of turn it into a little bit of like a mobile home. And the plan is that uh, I think soon, as far as I know, that their plan is just to set out and drive, drive across the country and go wherever uh, and, and to sort of do that. But I think it's in part because of a little bit of wanderlust. And I think it's a little bit of stress with jobs and money and perhaps a little bit of being disenchanted with the public schools. And, and I, I don't know, I don't obviously want to speak for her. I don't know her real well, but I think it's some combination of those things that is leading to it. I do want to talk more about that individual experience for you. That's really interesting, but just out of curiosity, since you're more plugged in maybe to that, that community than I am, do you think that if, if most people reach this point and make this decision because they're, they're at a little bit of a tipping point in their lives, we need to make a decision about either what we want to do or what we can afford to do or, or whatever those pressures may be, do you think that there is a, a noticeable portion of those people or that at some point, maybe in the future, there will be where people make this decision purposefully before the pressures arrive? Like how many people just say, yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm paying my bills. I like public school, but let's go do the travel thing. Let's go do this world schooling and move around. Is that uh, enough of the population now? Or do you think that we could reach a point where that becomes the conversation? Or is it very much uh, other pressures combine and people just reprioritize? And I, by the way, I think it's very important that as adults, it's very easy to get stuck in what we do. And so once in a while, it's important to check in what are our goals and, and to take a little inventory and, and all the rest. Do you see people putting travel with family at the top of the list when maybe some of those other pressures don't exist? I think there is. I mean, of course, I don't know the numbers, but in researching the industry for the book, 
um, I discovered just what a juggernaut industry travel and tourism is. And a lot of that is what they were saying in the, in the statistical research was that people were starting to offer their children experiences rather than stuff. They were just getting sick of, you know, purchasing things for their children. And actually purchasing things for your children nowadays is not cheap. I mean, any of the electronics are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. So people were describing in this statistical research that they were starting to give their kids experiences. And one of the things that they were doing was selecting travel. So yes, because the industry is so pervasive, I mean, it's worldwide. I mean, they have these tours. And I mean, it's just like, if you were to Google, you know, traveling with kids, I mean, you would be endlessly looking at blogs and articles on the internet. It's just become one of those things that people do. So yes, there is a whole, I think that perhaps maybe what it separates the world schoolers from or the world schoolers who are sort of at their wits end and decide to world school or world school and the people that world school because they want to give their kids experiences is that perhaps the world schoolers are just deciding to go in a completely different direction. And typically they do it for a long time. They, some of them are on the road permanently. They are just going from country to country and it's been eight years since they've been home or they don't have any, they relocate, they go from Australia to Panama and they're staying in Panama. And at at one point they may end up in England. There are some people who do this permanently. We, we never had that intention, but we did go for a long time. I think other people who are not at their wits end are able to do it because they can take a leave of absence or a sabbatical and they have the financial resources. Perhaps they can work remotely and they decide to do it because they want to spend time with their kids and they just want to explore Thailand for six months. So yes, I think there's a significant portion of the population that is deciding to travel with their kids because it's just the market is like the infrastructure is there now for families. Yeah. And it's interesting you say sort of the, the time spans, because that's something that I have thought about at its core. It's the same discussion, but it's, it's contextualized very differently. I, I mean, now I have kids, I don't go do much. And during a pandemic, I do nothing, but I used to go to a lot of concerts. And so I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, the Grateful Dead or Fish or bands that make their moves by touring, you know, and when I was high school, college, shortly thereafter, I would go and I remember doing, you know, a stretch, you know, eight or 10 concerts. And, but you, you see people who have RVs or who are living out of little Volkswagens and stuff. And I remember thinking over and over in that situation, like, man, I love doing this for two weeks. I couldn't do this for six months. You know, and now granted there, you know, you're, you're following someone else's plan and it's constant motion. You know, you never get to settle down for a few weeks in a place, but that's always been in the back of my mind when I think about how much or how little I want to travel for me personally, the duration would be difficult unless if I could spend a year in a place and then a year in a place, maybe for me personally, maybe I could do that. But when I, when I think about people who are more or less constantly on the move, you're working out of a school bus, uh, an RV, uh, whatever. I just think, man, that is exhausting. Like travel is so enriching, but if you're not really good at it and I would, I am not really, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not really good at it. It's exhausting. You know, it's, it's a lot of work to constantly be keeping track of where am I? When am I? How much money do I have? Where do I need to be? What are the available resources? I don't speak this language. And, you know, and for me, in a short-term thing, I think that's really enriching. I think it's wonderful. I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind personally around the more constant motion, you know? 
And so when you're thinking, and for people who can't see this, uh, Janet is laughing at me through a lot of this right now. Um, like, how do you talk with people about that experience? And, and I, don't, I don't know if there's an average, but for the families that are doing this kind of travel, what are the durations not of the entire world schooling? So we do it for a year, we do it for eight years. How long do most people spend in a place? Because I think that that, that sort of change from community to community or say moving through Europe where you have to change languages, you know, every 150 miles, like that is a grind, you know, like we want to get away from the rat race of paying bills and going to work, but you might find yourself in a place where you're not racing rats, but it is just as difficult, you know? So like, what is that experience like in terms of the duration or how do people manage the stresses of travel? I, I did. I have to say, I mean, one of the reasons I, I wrote the book is because there were many, many people that asked us how we could possibly, it, basically they're asked the same question that you just asked, which is how, how could you do that? How can you manage the stress of it and you're caring for two children and, uh, you know, that grind of going village to village. But the joke in, in this family is I find it much more stressful to organize a seven-year-old's birthday party than I do backpacking through Central America. So, you know, keep in mind that I had have been backpacking since I was 17. So that's something that's very familiar to me. I can adapt very well to places that speak foreign languages. And in fact, I'm a I'm a geek for languages. So I actually travel, this is going to sound so geeky. I actually organize my trips now to learn a language. So if I'm like, you know what, I don't know how to speak German. I think I'm going to go to Germany for six. Like that's just me. That's the way my geeky brain works. How many languages, how many, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to ask you this earlier, but it, it came back up now. How many languages do you speak fluently and how many languages in which can you sort of get by? So I can speak French and English fluently, and I can. My Spanish is close to fluent, uh, as you can imagine, after being two years in Central America. And my Italian is pretty. I come from an Italian family, so my Italian's pretty good. If I could just brag for a minute, my youngest daughter can actually speak four languages with varying degrees of fluency. So she she speaks obviously English. She speaks Spanish okay. It's been a long time since we were on the trip. She speaks French because we can maybe talk about this later. But we spent a lot of time in Quebec. And she's been world schooling herself since she was 17. So she spends a lot of time in Korea and she's considered at an advanced level in Korean. So the, I, I think that her, the geekiness that she has towards language and culture maybe came from me. But just to refer back to, you know, how some people react in the way that you reacted, which is it just seems very stressful to go from town to town and perhaps making sure that your children are safe and learning different languages as you go and trying to cope. Um, and I guess it's just a matter of perspective. Like travel for us was just so unbelievably interesting that those things are interesting to us rather than stressful. And some people just told me flat out that there's no way that they could do it. And one of the reasons is because when you world school, you are intensely with your family 24-7. So you are staying in campgrounds, you are staying in RVs, you are staying in hostels, you are staying in hotels. And so you know what that's like. There's very little time to be apart. It's just, so a lot of people were reacting to that too, more so than what you described about, you know, having to learn languages at each stop in Europe, for example. But that intensity to be around your, your entire family 24-7 for these long periods of time. But again, I had the training because I was homeschooling them until we got into the financial bind. So we were around each other 24-7 even before we left. 
So for some yeah. people, the fact that they don't like their family enough is harder <laughs> than the fact yeah. that they have to learn a language. Or, I mean, I, I don't want to be harsh, but that's, <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that is a limiting factor. Anyone who's ever gone on an extended you know, road trip, even, even without little kids, if you've just hopped in a car with a few of your best friends and spent more than a few days doing it, you suddenly learn a lot about how much or how little you like some of your friends. And so, I mean, that, that could be a limiting, a limiting factor. I want to ask you about the language a little bit more, but first, do you have a sense for how long is like a typical stay in a place or is it just very family to family? Like some people move every three days, some people spend six months. How long do most world schoolers expect to spend in a community before they move to a new one? Usually it's a long time. Usually they are renting uh, houses for weeks, if not months. We did it we sort of did it like that. So our trip was two years total and um, the school year. So we spent most of our time in Costa Rica, but we toured the entire region. The school year in Central America is January to December. And we had the intention of going down there to teach because we wanted to travel for longer. So we knew we needed a little bit of income while we were there. So we arrived at the end of August and we couldn't, we knew we couldn't start teaching then. So from the end of August until the end of December, we just, we just hopscotched from community to community. So we'd spend like a week here and three days there, whatever. When we found something interesting, we stayed. We had no schedule other than we knew we needed to find teaching jobs by January the 1st, which we did. So from January the 1st until the end of that year, December, we actually rented out a little cottage in a small village in Costa Rica. And then after that contract was completed, we went from January to April. We were, we returned to Canada from Costa Rica by hopscotching our way North to Miami actually. And then we flew home from there. So it depends. It depends on everyone's goals. And I mean, some, it seems to me like, cause I'm on all the Facebook groups. It seems to me that people are renting houses and staying somewhere like they'll stay in Bali for six months or they'll stay in Australia for 18 months. They'll tour around the region while they're renting a place. But that hopscotching is not, it's, it's hard to do that with kids. It's hard to hopscotch like I've described with kids. So we used to have parameters. Like we couldn't, we couldn't go for more than three hours on a bus. So we had to go, whatever community we were going to couldn't be more than three hours. Like it's just too much, you know, it's, right. you don't want to, you don't want to turn kids off traveling by having these, you know, really excruciating bus rides. So a lot of people don't hopscotch like that, but they'll do it sort of maybe every four weeks, they'll go to a new location. It just depends on everyone's goals. In, in terms of, it was interesting, you said you don't want to turn kids off to travel. And, you know, part of this, as you point out for, for yourself, this became a little bit of a lifestyle because you got a taste of travel and experiencing different cultures when you were 17. Your daughters obviously experienced this much younger. And so at that point, you probably don't have to teach a love of travel so much as safeguard the love of travel, as you just point out. Like, we, it's I don't have to turn you on to it. We just have to make sure we don't do anything you know, weird or, or too rash and, and turn you off from it. Thinking specifically about children, there are a million limiting factors that people would have to have to deal with in the logistics, the, the money and, and destinations and everything else. But thinking specifically about a child's experience, if you spend six months in a place, you learn the community a little bit, you find a, an ice cream shop you like, or there's some food, or the, you make some friends down the street, 
is the social dynamic difficult for younger children where you're constantly leaving your friends? Like I've taught a lot of students where, where I work. Um, it's sort of a transient community. We have a lot of people who live all over the world. There's a lot of government contract jobs. So people will be in the area either because they work for the military or for government contractors. They'll be there for two years and then they leave. And so I have a lot of students who have expressed that sort of difficulty of having to leave and then make new friends. And some kids kind of like it and a lot of them find it stressful, but I'm thinking maybe especially for younger kids, cause you said, you know, your, your daughters were younger when you did it, but when those moves come even more frequently, is that a, a social pressure that the kids experience? Do they get used to it? Um, not that this would be a reason to do, to do world school or not to do world school, but how do you accommodate a young child's need for some social stability? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things I write about in the book is it was actually easy for us to leave because they were homeschooled. They didn't have that they had each other. They're, they're two years apart. So they had each other and they were very good friends. They always got along, but they didn't have those, those friends that they, that typically kids make in school. So it was actually easy to leave. And once we were there, we were hopscotching around as I described. And then once Lloyd, my husband got a teaching contract at a private school, we talked about whether or not the girls should go to school. So whereas we were really committed homeschoolers, we talked about it as a family and the girls said, well, we want to try to make friends. Like we want to learn the language. We want to try to make friends. So we enrolled them in the school that he was teaching at. Um, and it was okay for a while, but the, it wasn't a private school, as you can imagine, and it sort of attracts a completely different demographic than what we belong to. And uh, the school wasn't in our community and it was really hard to sort of hook up with people on the weekends. So, and also the, we weren't getting much of a, re, a reduced price on the tuition. So it was really, what I talk about in the book is it really, the tuition for the girls to go really cut into our garage sale money. So we had like this massive garage sale for like six months before we left. And that was for um, excursions and emergencies. So we were eating into that to send them to the private school. And I said, we lived in this little village, this most wonderful, charming little village in Costa Rica. And I said, well, what if we send them to the public school? I mean, I don't know if they will allow them to go to the public school, but we thought it would be free and it would allow them to meet friends in their own community. So we went over to talk to the principal. Now, at this point, I was also teaching ESL in the community. The people of the community actually approached me because they knew I was a teacher and they knew I spoke English and they asked me to teach them. So I said, absolutely. And I, I was teaching them for free. I just did it as a volunteer. So the principal, who had several teachers at my class, said, of course, I'm going to allow your children to come to my school. So they went for several months and they made some really great friends there. And I have to say at the end of December, when we left, it was a bit hard. There were a couple of tears and, but the expectation that my girls had when we were on the trip is they always knew we were going to go back to Canada. That was always the plan. We weren't on the road permanently. So they always knew in their minds that this was going to be a temporary thing. And also at the point where we left the village to come home to Canada, we were not just going to the airport and flying home. They had ahead of them several more months of travel. So we sort of pitched it like we're going to see these volcanoes and we're going to go zip lining and we're going to see the rainforest. So they had something else to look forward to. So I think it eased the pain a little bit. It's, it's not an end. It's a beginning of a new kind of thing. And, you know, so, so, okay. Yeah. And that's good. Now in terms of a limiting factor, maybe for adults listening to this. So I'll share a quick experience of my own to put this into context. I grew up in central Pennsylvania. So a 
rural, suburban kind of area, very white, no other languages spoken, at least publicly at the time. There, there's there's a, a larger Hispanic community now. But I had no experience with foreign languages until I took foreign language in middle and high school. And I took French. Uh, and it was mostly just because the French teacher was nicer than the other ones. And to this day, it's still the only time in my life that my dad has ever said, I told you so. He's had a million opportunities. He told me as, as we were, had to make the big decision and I think it was seventh, maybe eighth grade. And I said, I'm going to do French. And he said, you're going to wish you took Spanish. And I was like, no, 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 the teacher's better. And I was better at it. And I learned it faster and whatever. And he goes, okay, just remember. And it was my first year teaching public school. And I had a class of, it was sort of a, a team taught. Uh, there were some ELL students. There were some special ed students. There's some gen ed students. It was a little bit everybody. I had kids ages 14 to almost 20. I think there were eight languages in the room, but the most common one was Spanish. And I talked to him on the phone and I was saying, I was like, man, you know, I could get through this so much easier if I knew some Spanish. And he coughed. He went, <laughs> I told you so, you know, and it's, it's really funny. And he was right. But you know, my family is very middle class. And so we did not do any traveling. The first time I left the country was to go on vacation, not real travel. But we went to Jamaica for spring break, my junior year of college, I organized a group of friends and we actually left the resort a lot, it turned into a little bit of travel, like we, we did some really cool things there. But it was still just a week and, and whatever else we got along great, but everyone in Jamaica speaks English. And I actually got pretty good with the, the kind of the local Creole. So I couldn't talk to them the way they were talking. But when somebody was, you know, trying to do something shady, like I caught on fast. I was like, oh, this is great. And so after I, I finished my master's degree, a friend and I went to Europe and I, I call it the appetizer sampler. <laughs> I, I, I think I forget the number now. I'd have to count. I think we went to eight, eight or nine countries and like 10 or 11 cities. And I think it was like 25 or 26 days. Like it was fast. It was, we got two or three days in each place and it was awesome. And, and probably one of my big regrets is that I have not done it since, or at least returned to some of those places. But the language I always felt like was the thing that I was worried about. And I did fine everywhere we went. I mean, we were also in Western Europe. And so most people spoke, you could always find someone that spoke English. Um, but I always thought it was funny that I did way better in Germany than I did in France. I did a little bit better in Spain and Italy than I did in France. And some of that's just the French culture. Like if I didn't try to speak French first, they'd be angry with me. <laughs> if I tried to speak French and I did it poorly, they'd be angry with me. So I just felt like people were just mad at me everywhere I went in France. The, but the language can be, can, at a minimum, it can be intimidating. And if you're going to leave, say, like, if I was going to leave the quote unquote traditional Western culture and leave Western Europe, if I was going to do the same kind of trip through sub-Saharan Africa, though I'd probably still find people speaking English, but if I was going to do this in East Asia, if I was going to do this in, in certain other places, I wouldn't have navigated as well as I did. And I'm not even sure if I did it that well. And so advice that I give to my students when they think about traveling, I say, you always have to have a few stock phrases. Anywhere you go, you need to be able to, you know, give a friendly greeting, ask, where's my hotel? You need to be able to say, where's the bathroom? I always tell them that the best trick is to learn how to order. This is, this is actually uh, dos cerveza, por favor. You, you <laughs> learn how to order two beers or if you're two ice cream cones, wherever you're at. And then you look around for a person who's looking at you who seems like they understood why that was hard. And I say, and you offer the second ice cream cone or the second beer to whoever looked like they might've spoken English. Because if you can't communicate with the people, everything else about it is hard or can, can be scary sometimes. Yeah. And so now I'm thinking more for the adults on the trip than for the children. But if you're not 
an ESL teacher, if you're not a person that just loves language and learning it, for you, that's an opportunity. But for some people, that's a deterrent. And so I guess my question is, if we're thinking about, say, global travel rather than inside your own country, what either advice would you give to people thinking about making that jump to a place where they're not familiar with the language? Or, or maybe what are some strategies that work to help families in those situations? Well, I mean, one of the good things about over-tourism, there's not that much that's good about over-tourism. We can talk about that another time. But um, is that the, the, the communities of the world know that English is the universal language. So it's, it's almost impossible to go somewhere without being able to communicate in English. World schoolers, though, tend to be, they tend to have an attitude that, what you just described, let's learn a little bit. Let's learn some key phrases. Um, and they'll, they'll, I mean, there's so many apps now that people can just, you know, it's hard for me to speak about because we went on the trip with one of the objectives being that we wanted the girls to learn another language. Now, it helped that I already had a minor in Spanish. So they were seeing me attempting, at first I was attempting to communicate. By the end of the two years, I was fully communicating. But when parents can model that that attempt. I mean, kids learn language so easy. I mean, it's, it's actually scary how easy they can learn a foreign language. So I think the most important thing is for people to at least make an attempt to understand or work through. So I remember when my husband and I actually, our honeymoon was in Korea. And of course, we didn't know any Korean and we were ESL teachers. So we, you know, and this was like 26 years ago. So they were flooding it with ESL teachers, but not that many people in the country could speak English. So I had these little strategies that I used. I had a little calculator, a tiny little calculator. And when I would go to the market to buy fruit, I, I couldn't say to them, how much is it? I mean, I did, but they didn't understand what I meant. So I did the calculator and then they would punch in the number and give the calculator back to me and they would say it in Korean. So eventually I was able, I remember I came home one day and I said, oh, I understood what they said to me. And then my students would help me. I'd say, you know, can you teach me how to count like one to 10 at least so I can understand how much. But I think world schoolers have this really open attitude towards language because don't forget that the point of world schooling is to provide an educational opportunity for children. And one of the, the easiest things to do when you're world school is to immerse your children in another language. So even if you're rubbish at it, and a lot of adults aren't, a lot of adults have, they're intimidated by the whole language thing, the kids will just run with it. I mean, they, they just play with other kids and they're jumping up and down and the kids are speaking to them in another language, they can pick it up like sponges. So, you know, most world schools are pretty open-minded about that and they can lead by example or just let the kids, like, just let the kids go. They will learn, you don't even have to do a lesson plan, they will learn another language so they'll, easily. They'll translate for you. That, and that, that's a fair point, I guess. The people who are drawn to this, both lifestyle, but also school model, so to speak, are probably the people who would be less intimidated. You know, the, the person who's hesitant about it in the first place probably isn't the person who's leaving their home for two years, selling their stuff and, and doing it. So that, that's, that's probably a, a fair point. You were talking there about sort of the, the immersion and the rest. And I was reminded, I don't remember the number, but a few podcast episodes ago, I spoke with Julia Rogers, who is the, uh, I believe, the president of the Gap Year Association, which is like the National American Organization that sort of keeps an eye on different Gap Year programs and things like that. And I think there's, there's actually, I think, a lot of overlap between some of the, the values that you're expressing in the multiculturalism, the experience, the learning by doing. And, and how she envisions a good gap year, especially travel-based gap year. The differences there 
most, not all, but most students enroll in some sort of program. There's a little bit of structure or there's at least someone you can call because, you know, they know where you're at and they know what you're doing. Whereas, you know, based on what you've said, it sounds like this is very much, world schooling is very much families sort of going it on their own. Are there organizations like outside of the informal, say of the Facebook group or, you know, uh, you get yourself into the right email list or, or something like that. Outside of those settings, are there any more formal programs that help families to transition into this? I mean, obviously you could call a travel agent, but that also is going to create a higher degree of cost and probably more structure than the average world schooling family would want. So how, how do people sort of bridge that gap and are there organizations there that, that can be helpful? There are, there is an organization called, I think it's called Project World School, I believe it's called. Um, most world schoolers are very independent minded people and they also have in their minds where they want to go. Uh, most of us congregate on Facebook. Uh, there are people that do um, a world school house swap. So they'll have a home in Colorado and someone has a, a home in England and then they'll, they'll swap like that. So it's very self-directed, which is interesting because that's kind of the whole point behind unschooling. And, but there are um, organizations, um, Lainey Liberti, so her name is L-A-I-N-I-L-I-B-E-R-T-I. She uh, runs a, a Facebook group and I believe she also runs Project World School. I think that's what it's called she organizes things for people to encourage people to world school. But when you talk about the gap year people, you know, typically those are, those are young people. Those are young people that are 18 and they're before they go on to college or university, they're, they're looking for a program that's appropriate for, for that age group. And it's not that organizations who were to arrange something similar for world schoolers are not appropriate. It's just that every world schooling family has a different time frame. They have a different financial background and they have different objectives for their trip. So for example, when we went on our trip, our, we had very, very specific objectives. And one of the most important objectives for us was to learn about the culture and also to learn what it was like to live in the developing world. So we, so despite the fact that we were $18,000 in credit card debt and we were having this financial crisis, our financial status in Canada was far and above what the people in places, for example, in Nicaragua were facing. So Nicaragua is the poorest country in the Western hemisphere beside Haiti. So their circumstances were light years different from ours, even though we considered ourselves struggling financially in Canada. So when we left, we said, okay, what is it really like to live on a limited income? So we said, we're going to try and live as much as possible like the locals. So those were, our objectives are very clear. We wanted the girls to learn the language, but we didn't even need to try. We knew they were going to learn it anyway. But to learn what it was like to live in the developing world, we wanted to live in a village. We wanted to live in a community where there were no other expats. We wanted to rent a house that was similar to everybody else. We rode the chicken buses, which is their main form of transportation down there. So when, when you talk about the possibility of organizations sort of organizing something for world schoolers, it might work. But I do find from the people that I've talked to is that we all have very, very different objectives about what we want to accomplish with our kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess part of that question is, is more of a, like an immediate or short term question because the direction that my conversations say through this podcast have taken have changed drastically since the pandemic sets in and schools are shutting down. I find I'm talking to a lot of very interesting people about very interesting ideas, but the, the 
the immediate context for it is different. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I went ahead and had the unschooling conversation with Katina was that um, I knew that Embark had existed and I'd been talking about maybe talking with them for a long time, but all of a sudden it seemed like pressing because I know so many families are considering new options. And I'm, I'm thinking about it both in terms of the long-term, if someone listens to this and they think, well, you know, at some point my kids get a little older, you know, that would be cool to do. How do I get started is great. But I also think that just in the short term, there's a lot of people trying to make decisions about what to do. Now, I don't know if, you know, international travel during a pandemic is, <laughs> is either, you know, feasible or smart. Um, but I guarantee you there are at least a few more people considering it right now that in normal circumstances wouldn't just because they're dissatisfied with their current options. You talked about the money thing and, and the, I'm going to use the term tourist in, in a slightly different way. I used to sponsor, I, I helped to start and then sponsor a UNICEF club at the school that I, I teach at. And we, did all sorts of multicultural events. We did a lot of fundraising and um, sent off for, for special purposes and things like that. And UNICEF does, the, there's like a week, they challenge students to live for a week on, I think it's $2 a day. I think one year it was five, or at least students did a modified version of five a day. And, you know, my students were trying to like feed themselves. And I'm like, you got to eat more rice. <laughs> and they're like, what? I'm like, put it with beans. You got to eat rice and beans. And they're like, what do you, that's all I get to eat all day. If I stay on that, I'm like, yeah. And you haven't paid for your house or your electric or anything yet. And they, and, and so, you know, whether or not it was a real representation of how other people lived, it certainly was a challenge that got them to understand the economic differences. But I would always remind them because you'd always have a couple kids who would do it successfully. By the end of the week, they're like, hey, I just went a whole week on $15. And, you know, that wasn't so bad. I'm like, yeah, but imagine doing it for the rest of your life. Imagine the rest of it. That what you just did was sort of the, the vacation. Like you were a tourist into that. You didn't really live it. And after, trust me, after a couple of weeks, that loses its appeal. Like you will be done with red beans and rice for a very long time if that's all you got to eat for more than that one week living in, in a different place. And, and you pointed out sort of the exchange difference. I recently met a, a neighbor in my very small town of Berryville who's here because they basically got stuck in the United States. They, they live in Ecuador. He's from the United States. His wife's from Ecuador and they got stuck here because of the pandemic. They were visiting his family. And then all of a sudden flights into Ecuador were just shut down. Uh, the city they lived in, I forget the name of it. It's the, it's the biggest city in Ecuador, but apparently it was hit very, very hard by the pandemic. And he, he was talking to me about, he was like, you know, you could teach at a private school there and you would sort of live like a king. He's like, you, the average salary is like, I think, I think he said it was like 300 US dollars a year or something like that. And he goes, you could, you could really, you'd be amazed at your quality of life. He said, but there's all these other things you exchange for it and, you know, conveniences that are lost. Knowing that the exchange rate in not everywhere, certainly, but in most places would work in your favor opens up the option. But if you're really trying to have the lived experience and not be a tourist, not be on vacation. You want to be immersed in the culture, and that means you live with the people. I'm not going to live in a hotel, etc. The exchange rate helps, but who does this? I mean, I know you said you did this in part because of you know economic hardship. Do you, in your experience, the people you know, is world schooling for anyone who has the wanderlust and the curiosity? Would you say that the people you know who do this are predominantly, you know, upper, upper middle class? Are there poorer families who pull it off? Because once you get to a new place, maybe your money situation looks differently. But I also know that sometimes when people feel desperate, they don't consider those other options. So in, in terms of economics, 
who both has access to world schooling, but who actually uses the access. I haven't found the, I'm on several Facebook groups. I haven't found that other world schoolers, I would not consider them wealthy. I mean, we certainly, to be quite honest, I sort of feel like our family was maybe at the bottom end of the the economic food chain in terms of North America, let's say. But by no means did I ever get the impression that people were wealthy. Um, they may have been. But um, what I, I really tried to convey in the book was that world schooling is not necessarily for wealthy people. And some people will, I mean, this is really common among the expat retired community, is that expats will relocate to Portugal or Indonesia or Panama, for example, because the cost of living is so much more reasonable. So whereas they may be struggling in the U.S., they're not in, you know, the way the, the, the economic systems work, they're just better off in other countries. So when we world school, we, we appear to be wealthy because we are in the developing world. But back home, it's just it's a struggle to make those ends meet, as I've described. But definitely people who world school, I've heard so many amazing stories from people who once they decide. So, you know, my husband and I had that list and we swapped the list and we saw at the top that it said travel. And then it was like, OK, that the decision is made. At that point, the decision is made. We already knew how to travel. We just had to bring the two little humans along with us. So how do we make that work? How do we make that work? That was just the question. It wasn't the question wasn't should we make this work or are we going to do this? It was how are we going to make it work? So then you start moving the priorities around. Right. So we, we, of course, the number one priority was to get out of debt and we weren't doing it by working night and day. So we started to sell the possessions. And when you've been married for 10 years and you start hauling stuff out of the garage, you say, oh, did you know we had five of these things? Like it's, you know what it's like, you know, you start accumulating. That's what it's like in the first world, right? It's like, why do we have? It's like you just looked into, it's like you just looked into my garage. That's amazing. How did you know? (laughs) I just looked in your basement because everyone's the same. Um, there was a really good book that was written by Karen Esterhammer. She wrote a fantastic book called um, So Happiness to Meet You. And during the economic meltdown in the States, I think you had a, a mortgage crisis there a few years ago. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, about um, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, and she, her and her family found themselves in this financial pickle and they decided to move to Vietnam. And that's what the book is about. And so her and I sort of corresponded a little bit and I said it was exactly the same experience. So here, like in the United States, I think she lived in California, if I'm not mistaken. She found herself in this economic situation and they sold everything and then went to Vietnam, which is a much more affordable. So do you see what I'm saying? Like in some parts of the world, you're wealthy. In some parts of the world, you're not. I, yeah, um, I have that conversation with my wife all the time. Like I try to remind her that we're rich. She's like, we're not rich. And I'm like, I know we're not rich like where we live. But, you know, like if you actually, no one ever does this. I actually do this. I teach an English class, but I do this sometimes when we read books about, um, you know, we address like economic inequality or you read a book about like the American dream and access to upward mobility. Um, and I actually pull the charts and, and use like the data. And I say, you know, not all your parents are going to be comfortable discussing it, but you don't have to tell me, I'll tell you those in the room, go home and ask your parents how much, like what's the household income and then go back and look at these charts. And what you're going to find is that almost everyone in this room is in the top 10% globally. And because we're in a wealthy community, a lot of those kids are in the top 10%, even nationally but they don't, they don't know it. Like they hear their parents saying, well, we don't have money for that or we can't do that. 
and they don't, they don't understand the scale. Like they only see the top end of the continuum and they say, I'm at the bottom end of this, but they don't realize that the continuum goes on for another 175%. Like, you know, that there's so much more space. And, and so by maybe realizing that it does create options, it does create opportunities. Again, if you're the person that has the, the curiosity or the willingness to, to travel, you know, I, I, I asked that question, not thinking that the economics was actually going to be a limiting factor. I was really just wondering how many people think it is, you know, that I think with money, money doesn't buy happiness, but money buys options. And when you get to make more choices in your life, sometimes you do feel a little bit happier. And so I just didn't know how that factors into like, are people more likely to make the decision to world school if they're not experiencing some of those other pressures or if they see more options for themselves. Are, are most of the families that you know through world schooling did either before or after their world schooling, you know, sort of tenure, are most of them homeschooling or unschooling families? Or like what, what is the percentage of people who maybe attend public school, travel for a while and then go back to public school? Like what, what is that dynamic? I have no way of knowing the numbers. And in fact, even in North America, they, we don't have any way of knowing how many people homeschool. In certain parts of North America, there's, there's no reporting policy. So where I live in Ontario, we, we, we don't have to even report to the government that we're homeschooling. And I think Texas is the same. And there's another state. I don't know which one it is. So the numbers are, are off. So, but one of the reasons I wrote the book is because there's really, there's lots and lots of blogs out there uh, from people who world school, but there's not that many memoirs. So I think there's maybe five or six, mine being one of them. And the difference in my book is that I already homeschooled my kids and then we considered the trip uh, an actual educational field trip. So it was part of their homeschooling education the other books that were written were people who temporarily homeschooled while they were on the road. And it was, it was a break from school. So I, I, like I said, I don't know what the numbers are, but I wanted to contribute to the homeschooling literature to just let people know who are already homeschooling their kids, that you have an opportunity to do this fantastic thing. And, and if I could just point out, Ryan, world schooling doesn't mean you have to go overseas. It could be you're going to spend six months, like you were talking about your wife's friend who's refurbing a, a, a school bus and they're driving all around the States. That's world schooling. You're just seeing the world. It doesn't have to be on another part of the world. It can be even within your own state or your own province. Um, so people, I wanted to contribute this information to homeschooling families to say, this is a really excellent way to teach your kid biology and science and social studies and history and geography and language arts. So uh, whereas other people typically, well, actually some world schooling families organize uh, curriculum and they'll, they take, they lug all these books with them, which is fine. Everyone has a different style. We didn't do anything like that. We just sort of let life roll, roll on every day, but that's how we did it at home too. So I, 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 don't, I don't even want to say most world schoolers don't homeschool, but I, I, think, the, I think there's a large uh, portion of the world schooling community that um, has their kids in regular school and just removes them for a period of time and then puts them back in when they get home. Awesome. So uh, you just sort of answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because there's another part to it. First, the title of the book is Adventure by Chicken Bus. 
an unschooling odyssey through Central America. And one of the striking things in the title is Chicken Bus. And <laughs> for anyone who, you know, if you look at, at classcastpodcast.com or if you look up the book elsewhere, um, the, the cover is striking. It's a very cool, colorful bus that reminds me of going to hippie concerts where people have painted up buses and that, that sort of thing. Um, a few minutes ago, you said the, the primary or most common form of travel in, I think you said in Costa Rica and some place in Central America is the chicken bus. And so two part question, part of which is already answered, but uh, one, what the hell is a chicken bus? <laughs> and, then, and then two, you, you just sort of talked about why you wrote the book, but in terms of it being a memoir, like how much of it is just memoir sharing experience versus how much is meant to be sort of instructional, I guess, is the remaining part of it. So a chicken bus, chicken buses have a very interesting story behind them. The, and, and by the way, thank you for mentioning my cover. My publisher did such an amazing job. It was, it was as soon as I showed my family, they're like, oh, I think we rode that very chicken bus that they, it was just a, they did a great job on the cover. So chicken buses are, everyone knows what a school bus looks like. It's those, you know, orange, yellow school buses that everyone has probably ever ridden. Even if you don't live in a rural community, you've been on one of those to go on a field trip. The cheese wagon. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you call them? The cheese uh, wagon? That, I don't know. I, I remember kids when I was in school that used to joke about it. The kids who didn't ride the bus called the bus, the cheese wagon. <laughs> once they, there's a, a, a mileage limit that those buses, once they reach that limit, they have to be retired from use and then they are, I don't exactly know if they're auctioned off to communities in Latin America or if they're donated. I don't exactly know how that works. But the, but the buses are driven down through Canada, the United States and Mexico and into uh, the rest of Central America. So they're very, very common in places like El Salvador and Guatemala. Um, Costa Rica and Panama, which they have the financial resources to buy, purchase what we would consider like regular coaches but they still do have chicken buses in certain regions, like usually in the rural regions, but places like Guatemala, that's almost all they use. But once those buses arrive in the, the country, they are completely refurbished. They're, they're painted those wild colors that you described that sort of look like hippie, but they're so they're turquoise and they're pastel. They're just beautiful. They, they, they put overhead racks on the outside. Then they put roof racks inside they rip up the seats and they put them closer together so they can accommodate more passengers. Usually at the back, there's a gap of say maybe five or six rows of seats are ripped out and then they can put cargo back there. And they, they install huge speakers above the driver's head and they just blast that Latino music, like really blast it. And it usually has religious imagery and that forms the main part of their public transportation system. They're dirt cheap and they go and they, they go into every outlying area. Like they'll, they'll make their way to every sleepy jungle backwater. Like we went to every sleepy jungle backwater using these buses. And when we could go no further, we actually did boats like to get the islands and things. So they're wide reaching. They're really inexpensive and they act as a lifeline for the residents there who don't have the financial resources to purchase vehicles. So even people will take their pets to the vet by chicken bus, or they will, they own like a small uh, convenience store and they'll go to the main city by chicken bus. They'll load up on all of their supplies. They'll put it in the back as I described that little cargo area and they will take the chicken bus back to their community. And so this is, it's a lifeline for people. So that's how we navigated through the entire region by chicken bus. That's amazing. Real quick. Why do they call it a chicken bus? Can you imagine why? 
I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of lot more chickens on the bus than I would be comfortable with, but I don't know. There are there are chickens that's like I said, they transport anything. I mean, everyone in Latin America seems to have a chicken. So they need to be transported. We would see people with boxes with the little chicks in there. Sometimes we saw full grown chickens in vinyl bags. Yes, yeah, so that's why they call it. <laughs> okay. And it's not, and just to be clear, it's not a derogatory term at all. It's a it's a, an affectionate term that that we use. That's We're, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the second part of your uh, question? So, and the other part, and, and well, and I, I combined those two because you'd already kind of answered the other question, which was, you know, a little bit more about the book. And you'd already talked about sharing the memoir and doing it with sort of the homeschooling lens and all that. Um, I was just curious, traditionally in the memoir, you're telling personal stories on a certain topic or period in a person's life. In, in that, in sharing your family's story, how much actual guidance or advice are you providing? Is that a lot, a little, none? You, you already defined it as a memoir and sort of talked a little bit about the intended audience. I'm, j- I'm just curious, for people who are interested in the story, it sounds awesome and, and worth checking out. People who are considering world schooling as an option, how much of this would just be like learning through your experience versus do you provide any direct advice for other people considering these options? I de- it's definitely a memoir of our experiences, but I pepper it with practical advice. So the, one, of the, one of the main pieces of advice is how to travel on an extreme budget, extreme budget. So I, I offer tips on how to, you know, just provide what we call it a Ziploc salad, Ziploc bag salad. You know, just I, I, I give a recipe on how to do that, how to travel cheaply. One of the other main components of the book is... I sort of constantly describe how we expose the girls to what we call community-based travel. So we had, we did some volunteering in a turtle sanctuary. We actually slept overnight in the jungle with an indigenous family. And that was part of a a microloan program. So this particular organization was raising money to offer microloans to the indigenous community. And part of the package was to sleep overnight with a fit like literally in the jungle i mean there was no running water it was like we had a fat strip was open air the jungle toilet was like a a hole in the ground like it was was the actual experience but we constantly said to the girls as much as we can we're going to avoid shopping at a corporation because I, i write tons of articles on this topic The problem with travel and tourism is what they call economic leakage. So that means that for every $100 that you spend in a destination, how many of those dollars actually stay in the community? So the UN actually did a study and they found that for every $100 spent on a vacation, only around five of those dollars stays in the community. So that's massive economic leakage. So when I talked earlier about the problems of over-tourism, that's a main problem. So apart from the environmental degradation, you are also going to these destinations and the people there really gain no benefit. It's more of a, uh, of a deterrent for tourists to go there. So we always tried to minimize the economic leakage. So that meant that every tour guide, everything that we purchased, every excursion that we went on was either a business that was owned by local people or it was guided by local people. And that's, that's peppered throughout the book. And we, we just, I, I put those statistics in there and I show people how to be aware of their economic leakage. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's important, but kind of everywhere. I mean, in, 
I don't know if you guys do this in Canada, but in the United States, there's always talk about buy American, buy American. And, you know, and in one way, I think it's a good thing because you're trying to support local communities. The, the, in the other way, I think sometimes you're just depriving poorer people in other parts of the world of, you know, access to jobs and, you know, whether they're good jobs or not is a separate discussion. But um, I don't think it's always a simple you know, say when you're at home of just buying stuff made in your country, because again, if very little of that money trickles down into the community where the factory is located, then buying American didn't really mean much when you're traveling. And especially when you're traveling to poorer countries, that's probably an even bigger concern because people are working on smaller margins. And so I think that that's, that's both a very serious and thoughtful concern. I also think that it's an incredibly valid thing to talk about when someone is talking about traveling. Um, you know, when you're going on vacation, you're going to stay on a resort and you never leave the resort. Uh, that is what it is. And, and I mean, you, you know what you're, you're buying into at that point. But when people are, are moving under the guise of travel, I think it's probably smart to be mindful of where you're spending your dollars. Um, because in the end, you may not actually, you know, obviously, when you're traveling, you're learning from people, you're getting more from them than they're getting from you. But there should be something you're giving back in return. And economically speaking, that might just have to do with buying smart and going to the right stores. So let's let's do the the school thing because we've talked a lot. We've got through travel. We've gotten through some some unschooling issues and who has access. And we talked a little bit about the book. And of the standard questions I ask in the podcast, my favorite one is, "What to you would be the ideal school?" And I've talked to so many different people that I've heard from the very mundane to some sort of wild things. If you were going to take whatever you think is best in terms of a public education institution. So if you want to make everyone travel around the world, that's cool. But I want you to think that it's scalable, that you can do this with a thousand kids and that another school could replicate it to, to some extent. If you were given a budget and free run to do what you think is best to educate the youth, what would your ideal school be? For me, the ideal educational environment would have choice as its foundation, especially for youth like I think younger children seem to be naturally curious about almost anything, but as they grow up, they develop interests. And I think it's really important to offer lots of opportunities for them to explore what they're interested in. Uh, Carrie McDonald wrote an excellent book called Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Fantastic Are you familiar? Book. Yeah, yeah, fantastic book. Oh, she's, she was just so great. The way she described I couldn't have described unschooling better than how she put it, which was, I just love the analogy she used about libraries and museums. So everybody that goes into a library has the choice of reading any book that's in that library. And it's the same as a museum. You can go to any exhibit that you want, any room, you can avoid certain areas, or you can spend as long as you want in the Egyptian wing. And that's, that's what unschooling is. It's, it's offering kids a choice. Now, I do think that it's really, really important when they become adolescents. I think that I think that some of the problems that we have with adolescents being completely unmotivated is that we're not offering them what they're interested in. So when, for example, when we went on the trip, they, our kids were young and kids just want to be with their parents when they're young like that. And they, we showed them all kinds of things and where they were seeing monkeys, we went to sanctuaries and zip lining and kayaking on the ocean. Everything that we did was obviously interesting for them. And at one point we said to each other, you know, they picked up Spanish like a sponge. So we should sort of consider doing that back in Canada, in Quebec, because it is one of our national languages. Of course I was already fluent and I, it had so many 
advantages for me in my career speaking French. So my husband and I decided that we would cut the trip short a little bit and go to Quebec for the summer so that the girls could learn French. And it was so successful by the end of the summer, they were speaking French that we repeated that for four summers after that. My husband was a teacher, so we had the summers off. And we went back every single summer for four more summers. And then in the fifth summer, my husband was getting ready to go back to Quebec. And I said, yeah, I don't know if this is, we can do it anymore because our oldest was 13. And there's, that's the age, right? Where they start to get their own ideas and they have their own interests and they have their own objectives. And she really got interested in theater. And I said to him, I don't think we can do it anymore. I think we need to, we need to sort of like be a, sort of in the background and sort of see what they're interested in and then just put our energy behind that. And that's what happened. She was busy all summer with theater. So, and, and we just sort of went with that. Whatever they were interested in, we went with. So I think there's usually like a cutoff point where like an elementary school system, like, you know, it's, I'm sort of describing Montessori, aren't I? Where you offer a little like, bit, yeah. all kinds of things for kids to become engaged in. And then once you become adolescents, you sort of stand back and say, well, what is it that you're interested in? And try to expose them to as much as possible, because how do they know what they're interested in if they haven't, you know, seen a certain sport or gone to the theater or studied nutrition or whatever it is that they're interested in? So that, that would be my ideal educational environment. I like it. And I think that that's an, an ongoing discussion, too, because I think a lot of people say when you leave high school, you should be getting a job or going to college and you should know what you want to study. And you know, we see the the data in the United States is that the average undergraduate changes their major two and a half, so two to three times. And that, that represents, you know, in some cases, just curiosity and, and finding something. But in some cases, that just represents a, a lack of awareness. And you say, but you studied all the different subject areas. And then, you know, but if, you, if we're being honest about it, the subject, the traditional subject areas in most public schools don't actually reflect the diversity of jobs that are available or even life experiences. Even if you don't want to say we're teaching you how to do a job, we're still not representing all of the other things the world has to offer you either. So I, you know, I'm mostly on board. I like the idea of giving that sort of choice. Would you be comfortable with any mandatory instruction? Like you said, you listened to the unschooling episode with Katina Franklin, Sweetie or Sweetie Franklin, um, that I, I had said that I'm cool with a lot of choice, but I think everyone should have a numeracy and a literacy class, even if it's 30 minutes a day. I just think that purposeful and thoughtful work with numbers and work with language is important. And if you can have someone who's very good, uh, an expert in the field there to guide you, because those are the two things that unlock all the other things you want to do. If you can read, write and speak and you can do math, the world is yours because you can teach yourself the rest of it. And so that was her one sort of serious disagreement with me was she says, that's unnecessary. You don't need to force them to learn it. And I said, well, I don't know that we have to force it. We can, you know, disguise it a lot of different ways, but I would be comfortable with the kind of choice you're talking about with the exception of literacy and numeracy are essential. And so, well, maybe you get to choose the book you're going to read. I think that someone should be directly helping you to learn how to read it better or how to process or how to annotate or whatever the skills that we associate it with would, would be in terms of the kind of choice you're envisioning. Would you be comfortable with having some prescribed curriculum or do you think that that is in the end going to be a deterrent and, or counterproductive? Like, are you saying sort of total freedom or like a 75% freedom? Like where would you be on that continuum? Total freedom. <laughs> so I, I suppose I side more with Katina's um, thoughts on that. I think that one of the things that I thought about after I listened to that podcast was I think in a way numeracy and literacy are inevitable. 
I mean, my kids had no formal numeracy or literacy. We obviously have a house full of books. This is what I'm saying. Most, uh, I, I can't really even say most. Families that are really concerned about their children's education tend to have a house full of books. And I think numeracy occurs naturally. I think there are, there are things that happen in life where you're required to add and subtract and divide and multiply, etc. And I also think we have tools. I, I, you've probably heard this argument before, but you, we have tools now where, I mean, I don't do my taxes anymore. I just plug it into the software and it does it for me. Whereas back in the day, we had to do it all, you know, with a pencil and an eraser. Um, I think that if you've heard, have you ever heard Ken Robinson's talk on TED, the, um, the creativity in the school yeah. systems? Yeah. He, he, he made such a good point, especially because I have, I was talking about my daughter who was in theater. Well, she's actually just got her master's in musical theater. So we just rode that train all the way to the end. <laughs> and, and what he said about the arts really resonated with us as a family because he said, there's no education system in the world that values the arts over maths and sciences. And even within the arts, you know, drama, dance, music, and whatever else it would be. Visual arts, it, yeah. There's, there, and th there's even a hierarchy so, you know, dance is considered below art and then music would be, so there's even a hierarchy within the arts field. And, and I thought, well, that's really interesting because this may shock people, but among the homeschooling community, there are many, many anecdotes about children who read late. And I'm using my air quotes when I say read late. So both my kids who I have one who's just graduated with their master's and I have another one who's in, well, she's a COVID refugee right now, but she, she's in college. Obviously they're both really good readers, but both of them read late. One read at age eight and one didn't read until age nine, which if they had been in the public school system, that would have been cause for concern. There would have been some remedial action, all the rest of it. But because they had taken music from the time they were infants, they could, at age four and five, they could identify when they heard classical music, they could identify which one was Beethoven, which one was Mozart. But the school system doesn't value that. They value that they should be able to read at age five. So do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think that in my opinion, mandatory courses are not necessary because I think there are some things that happen naturally. And I think we can trust children to pick up literacy skills and numeracy skills but how do they pick up an appreciation for music? How do they pick up how to become fit? Those are the things that we don't often emphasize, certainly not the arts, that maybe those should be mandatory or maybe we should emphasize those more. Just food for thought. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And I, and I do object, probably not entirely. I mean, I think there's probably some exceptions, but I generally object to the sort of the age benchmarks especially for younger children. I mean, we might say by the time you're 15 or by the time you're 25, you should, you know, whatever. But, you know, the difference between learning something when you're five and learning it when you're eight doesn't really matter unless we've structured something around that expectation because naturally on its own, the difference just doesn't really exist for, for most skills. I mean, you know, we might want you to be able to feed yourself or get dressed, but whether you're reading chapter books or picture books probably doesn't make a massive difference at that age. And so I think sometimes we corner ourselves by saying that everything works in this, you know, progression. And then we say, everybody's going to do the same progression. And then you have trainers and, and administrators telling teachers that, you know, treat every student as an individual. Oh yeah, but your kid, those kids are behind. And it's like, well, they're not behind if we treat them as an individual. So, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. And, and so while I personally, I would still hang on to some of the direct instruction, I do think that the way we, we benchmark it would have to, or should be very different. 
just because sometimes that becomes counterproductive. You know, if your daughter had been labeled as a late reader in age nine, she gets stuck in a special room with other kids who maybe, you know, now she falls in with a different group of friends or she thinks of school differently. The kid who gets suspended for, you know, whatever in third grade just starts to associate I'm the kid who gets that. And that does a weird thing in your head where later on in life, you maybe don't avoid the suspension because for you that feels natural now. And so while sometimes we're trying to do things that we think make schools run well, we're also doing things that make young people think about themselves very differently. And that actually probably has a bigger impact. You know, thinking I'm a struggling reader has a bigger impact for the next 50 years of that person's life than whatever it was that they couldn't have done that day in school. You know, the, the disruption in the lesson is minor compared to the impact in the student's life. And, and I think that's why we probably need to be more cautious with some of the age grouping and benchmarks, also maybe some of the disciplinary issues. But yeah, so the, the, the choice piece I think is great. And I think it's, it's maybe difficult to administer, but that, in my opinion, shouldn't be something that deters us from trying it. You know, saying it's hard isn't a good reason not to do it if we, if we think that it's important. So I have one last sort of formal question. We'll get ready to wrap up. Books and movies, obviously, Adventure by Chicken Bus and Unschooling Odyssey through Central America should be on this list. Um, And you can talk a little more about it if you like, but what are maybe some other books or movies that you've enjoyed? And this can be for personal appreciation, just I thought it was funny, I liked it, uh, or dealing with education or travel. What are some things that you would recommend to our listeners? I've got a few on my list. Okay, I already mentioned Carrie McDonald's book. I just love that book. Then there was another book written by Jessica Watson, and it's called True Spirit. So this is a book written by a 16-year-old girl who sailed around the world nonstop by herself. So she was Australian. She's Australian. And I think at age, she had sailed all her life with her family. And I think at age 14 or 15, she pitched this idea to her family that she wanted to be the youngest person to sail around the world nonstop. And I mean, it took an enormous amount of energy to convince her family to let her do it. And then even more effort to get support, to raise the funds, to get supplies, to arrange a support team, but she did it. Um, And I just thought, first of all, she was a girl. So I just thought it was fantastic. And it just sort of showed what young people are capable of. I think it really, it has hit me quite a few times as I watch my girls grow up, just how how much young people are capable of that we sort of dismiss as a society. So that was a really great book. And then the other, I don't know if you saw the movie on Netflix called the boy who harnessed the wind. I've heard of it. I've heard, I've not watched it. He it's the guy. Well, I'll let you talk about it, but he, he builds wind, windmill wind generators, right? Yeah. So he's, it's, it's about a boy in Malawi. It's a true story about a boy in Malawi who invents a wind turbine And he just uses scraps and spare parts of a bicycle to power an electric water pump so he can irrigate the crops in his village. But the the great part about it was because there was a, I think there was a drought. And so his family was very affected economically by that and they could no longer afford the tuition fees. So he couldn't go to school, but he managed to get into the library. I don't remember how he did that. And he just accessed all the books and he was looking through some of the books because he was, he was trying to solve this problem that his community had. So it was totally self-directed and he accessed the books at the library on his own. And there was um, a librarian or a teacher there who he went to for advice. So there was a mentor. So it was like when you talked about the ideal educational environment, I did forget to mention that there probably should be mentors there. Whereas sort of teachers, it's sort of viewed as like, this is a top down, this person's like, 
teaching a lesson and the information is going into your head. The mentor relationship is different, right? So you have somebody there who's already got experience or they can direct and guide. So that's what they portrayed in that movie so well is he had, he had some resistance from his, from his dad and from other people, but <clears throat> he was so motivated. Went to the library, accessed the materials, asked his mentor, the librarian, for some help. And sure enough, he was, and it was a true story, and he ended up creating, inventing this, this device that pumped up the water to irrigate the crops, and his community benefited from that. Then the other one, this is actually a funny one. So the last movie that I would love to recommend is called School of Rock with Jack Black. Yep, yep. That's like a family favorite. So if people don't know the movie, you know, Jack Black plays this substitute teacher, and he just desperately wants to win the battle of the band. So he manipulates the students into forming this band with him. But it's really great because he's very encouraging, but he also allows each kid to sort of play to their strengths. So there was a bass player and she became the cool bassist and there was a drummer. He allowed him to be the drummer, but there were people that were really creative. So one of them created the costumes. The other guy designed the light show. So it was like they just sort of did this group project, but each student had an opportunity to play to their strengths. So that, that movie was, well, that's one of our favorite movies as a family. That was great. And, that's a, and that, that's a fun one too, because I think oddly enough, when it first came out, I don't think anyone, at least no one I heard referred to it in any like, you know, intellectual discussions of education. And somehow the movie, you know, sort of faded from popular attention. And now I hear it referenced more frequently in terms of student choice or in terms of project-based learning and things like this. Like somehow a movie that, you know, I mean, it has some good ideas in it, but that, you know, at least on the surface is kind of just comedy and it's a little silly, has somehow like secured a place in this discussion that's a little bit more serious than I don't know if it's more serious than it was intended, but it was certainly more serious than it was advertised. That's for sure. I, I've had some students who, probably when I was younger, but I had I had students, it's also the movie was more new, but I used to, when I taught younger, younger students ninth grade, they used to say like, you know, you're like Jack Black in that movie. And I'm like, we don't do anything nearly that fun, but I'll take <laughs> it as a compliment because otherwise you're either saying I'm a terrible teacher or this is completely awesome. So I don't, I don't know, but I'll take it as a compliment. So that's a good one. So, okay. So we got, we got a few books and a couple, a couple that I've heard of a couple I haven't. So I'm going to check those out. So before we wrap up, is there anything else that you think we either missed, we sped through too fast that you would like to clarify or restate before we're done? I had, I had prepared for the interview by um, making sure we were really clear about wor what world schooling is, but I think we've, we've done a really good job at defining it. And it's a practice, I guess you could say, where people take their kids on a trip for educational purposes. Um, the, the, the book that I wrote sort of differs from a lot of experiences that world schoolers have because we were really willing to live on a very limited income. That's sort of one thing that sort of sets it apart from other books, in my opinion. So we were living on a range of $600 a month to $1,500 a month. And it depended on the country we were in. So when we were in Costa Rica, my husband was making $700 American a month. And that was high. That was close to double what the locals were making. And we couldn't do it. It was really hard. So we tried as best we could to learn. So I had, and it was a cash society, right? So I had I think it would, whatever it was, I think it's colones. It's been so long, I can't even remember. But I had that in cash and I had, you know, I sort of, sort of saved it scrupulously and I tried to make it within $700 a month. And then when we were in places like Guatemala or Nicaragua, for that matter, we were able to go down to $600 a month. So this is how we were able to stretch our funds. But what an eye-opening experience to know that we couldn't even do it. And even though we had a high salary, we didn't live in poverty, just to be clear. 
but we saw a lot of people around us were. And so when you described earlier, you were encouraging your students to live on $2 a day or whatever it was and, you know, eat beans and rice. And so that's what the locals would do. But, you know, we had the resources to provide the fruits and vegetables to the kids, but that was, that was different, right? From what the locals were doing. So it was a really, really interesting way to convey to the girls, you know, even though we're trying really hard to live on a limited income, we can't do it. And also I wasn't willing to, in some cases, I mean, I wanted them to have vegetables and fruit, right? So, but it was even for young children, they could see, they could see that it was a clear difference between their lives and their lives. And I remember my one daughter said to me one day, does Santa even come here? Like, does he visit these houses? So things were, you know, I think things were getting into her head. And when we were in Nicaragua in particular, it was fairly heartbreaking. At times there were boys that were coming up to us asking us for money and they were asking us for our water that we had, which we gave them like immediately. Um, and the girls, they were very young, so they didn't quite understand this whole community-based system that we had adopted. So they would take the coins and they would collect them in a baggie and they would give them out. But at that point, I started to point out, you know, if we go to this store, that boy's mother runs this store. And so if we shop at her store and we buy her products, then, you know, it's more likely that that boy will have money, whatever he needs, school supplies or whatever. So that's where I believe the book sort of sets itself apart from other, you know, we went here and then we did this and then we did that. I was trying to make a point that this is how we learn how other people live in the developing world by trying to live like them and learn what their culture is like. So um, it was, it was difficult. It was challenging, but I believe it had an impact. I can see now that the girls have a worldview that it's hard to say if they would have had a different worldview if we hadn't gone but I can definitely see their reactions to things going on in the world may have, may have been as a result of our experiences there. Definitely. And that, um, I mean, I have a lot to think about here because as a teacher and my wife's a dance teacher, um, so she gets to sort of set her own schedule a little bit. You know, it's one of the things we look forward to most. We've got just a little bit longer before we can really travel with any comfort. Like we need you out of diapers sort of stuff. But, you know, we really look forward to being able to take advantage of summers off since our jobs will afford that. And, we said when, oh yeah. as soon as they're out of car seats is a good time to think about it. Yeah, as soon well, as and, they can be out of a car seat. And, and that's a good benchmark. Although, you know, I don't know how they're doing in Canada, but here the age keeps getting older. I think kids sit in booster seats until they're like <laughs> yeah, 25 they're, they're now they're or something. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> you can drive the car before you're out of it, but yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, but no, that's something we look forward to. And, and I think, I, I hope that listeners have taken away some interesting ideas. I know that for me personally, I'm certainly thinking about some things that I can do even short term using that time in the summer, because as you pointed out, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be experienced. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for two years, though that certainly would be an amazing experience as well. All right, so we're going to wrap up. Uh, we've been speaking with Janet Lasol, the author of Adventure by Chicken Bus and Unschooling Odyssey through Central America. And Janet, thank you very much for meeting with me and speaking today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Ryan. 